the Chinese government performed a anti-satellite missile test that they blew up one of their own satellites intentionally. And five years later, debris from the same explosion basically hit a Russian science satellite and basically rendered it unusable. Unlike airspace, which belongs to a country and that the country can enforce regulations around it, space basically doesn't belong to anyone. So we believe that there needs to be a very serious effort in setting some ground rules for all satellite operators globally to basically keep the uh, Earth orbit environment safe and also uh, sustainable for next generations. Hello, and welcome to More Intelligent Tomorrow, a wide-ranging exploration of the potential impact of AI on the world around us, as envisioned by the future heroes of the human and machine intelligence revolution. Can we use AI to track space junk traveling at 18,000 miles per hour? We'll discuss this and more with our Asphyxian Simak Hezar on today's episode. And now, your host, Ben Taylor. Araz and CMAC, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the time and interest. Thank you for having us. So how do you pronounce the name of your new startup? It is uh, called Kehan Space. Uh, and in Farsi, it means universe, Kehan. And it happens to be the uh, name of my, uh, my son. So. Awesome. Yeah. And what, what does this startup do? What are you guys focused on? So we are a, a software analytics platform focused in uh, space applications. More specifically, we deliver uh, satellite collision assessment and avoidance services to satellite operators, uh, making sure that space debris are not going to hit satellites. So I, I love this topic. This is such a niche, special area. I want to back up and find out how you guys found yourself working in this domain. Because I, I, I don't imagine you went to school thinking, I want to work on space junk collision detection. Yeah, I've actually, uh, you know, my uh, background goes into, uh, you know, I've worked in the aerospace industry for over 10 years. A couple of years ago, several years ago, actually, by now, I received a PhD from the University of Colorado Boulder, where I also live today, uh, close to Boulder. Uh, so the focus of my PhD was astrodynamics and uh, spaceflight mechanics. And, you know, through my uh, PhD program, it was sponsored by the OSIRIS-REx Astro Sample Return Mission. And I did a one-year postdoc uh, on that mission as well, which if your audience uh, might be aware that, you know, recently OSIRIS-REx had a really exciting news that they were successful in collecting a lot of uh, sample uh, from the surface of the asteroid, Bennu. So that was exciting to see. And then after my postdoc from the University of Colorado Boulder, I went to the industry, worked in a couple of commercial companies, supporting different NASA uh, missions, more specifically NASA GPM mission, OCO2, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and the work I did there was mainly in the spacecraft operations, conjunction assessment, uh, operational orbit determination and such. So, so I guess that's a quick background about myself. And you can kind of see the direction of my career, where it's going, and how it ended. Up, I ended up, you know, in with Kahan. So, yeah, that's a fascinating background. So, yeah, Aras, what's your background? Um, yeah, so my background is in product development, analytics, and cloud computing. So, I'm a programmer. I've been programming since I was a kid. I have a master's in information systems, and my skills is to bring technology and try to solve a problem for industries. You know. I've done it for uh, hospitality industry, cybersecurity, and now this is aerospace. So 
Uh, I've joined uh, a, an early stage startup years ago, and I, and I left them after round D. That was in hospitality. We brought the power of cloud computing to help hotels price their rooms better. And then I co-founded the first cybersecurity company with one of my um, colleagues. And again, we use the power of cloud computing to reduce the cost of providing security to residential customers. And Sam and I go way back. You know, we've been friends since high school. We went to college together. We, you know, we were roommates and we were talking last year or a year and a half ago. And I, I don't have any background. I mean, I didn't have any background in space before um, starting this company. And we were talking about Sam's frustration with software issues in space industry in general. And the fact that he had, you know, built same capabilities over and over for various organizations and companies. And that just sounded like a great idea. And as um, since technology is my hammer, I, I offered to uh, get together with CMAC and, and uh, look into this problem and see if there's an opportunity for us to offer a product to solve this problem. And, and we believe that we have actually found a really, really good opportunity here to help space industry with software. Interesting thought I just had. Space can be very impressive for all the technologies that we use to get to space, but maybe speak briefly to some of the places where space technologies are lacking. So you mentioned cloud computing and some of these things. What's your perspective? What areas are lacking when it comes to support for some of these space initiatives? And why have they been lacking? I think it's, it's a great, great time for space industry. You know, we've gone from space only being achieved through, you know, government projects and also really large corporations. Today, you know, you can be a small student group out of a college and, and launch a CubeSat. You can, you can start a tech company, a startup, if you have a, say, you have a sensing technology that and, and, and you want to launch a mission to, to deploy it. You can easily do that with very, very small budget compared to what you could do years ago. So the difference is that back then, or, or you know, just a few years ago, maybe, if you were a a government organization, or if you were a multinational corporation, you had the means to offer an army of engineers like CMAC to build software for you, to build products, to build everything. But not a lot of smaller companies can afford to do that, right? It doesn't make sense. And that's what's changing really rapidly with space industry is that it's growing so fast. And uh, we have a lot of smaller companies that are focusing on the core mission. And it's very valuable to have uh, a company like Kahan. We can come and assist them with all their non-core parts of their mission, right? So if it's a mission design, they don't have to they don't have to hire software engineers to help them build tools tools to design their mission. They don't need to hire engineers to come in and build tools to avoid collision or conjunctions because now companies like Kahan can actually offer that as a service, offer that offer the software as a service to to space industry. So I think it's just a really it's just a great time in space industry today. It's also a scary time because of the amount of debris that exists in space. So maybe give the listeners that background, how much debris is up there? And are we facing a future where we can't go to space anymore because it's too dangerous? Yeah, I'll start and see how I feel free to jump in. So just a little bit of uh, background since 1960s, we've launched about eight to 9,000 satellites total. And just in the last 12 months or so, SpaceX alone for their own constellations, Starlink, they have launched around 1,000 satellites. So just between um, Project Kuiper, SpaceX, and uh, a couple other projects, we are expecting to see tens of thousands of satellites to launch in the next couple of years. So just so you can see, the order of magnitude more satellites we're launching today. U.S. Air Force's Space Surveillance Network today is tracking and cataloging about somewhere between 20 and 30,000 objects 
that are larger than I believe around 10 centimeters, like a you know, maybe a softball. And that is the number of objects that we are tracking today. It's estimated, um, say like what's a million pieces of debris larger than uh, a penny and smaller than we don't, we just basically don't know. We can we have estimates, but we don't know. So there are two components, right? So there's, there's natural debris, there's orbital you know, natural debris. There's also uh, man-made debris, whether it is uh, defunct satellites or other uh, spacecraft or debris from past uh, incidents and accidents or breakups. And plus, we have a lot more operational satellites that are going to be on, on collision course. And they are, and they will be you know, on collision course more frequently than before. Yeah, and I guess I'll add to that is that in terms of the space debris, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but space is by the U.S. and also uh, U.K. that I know is that it is categorized as a national security infrastructure. So really, you know, when you look at space and it's not just, you know, going astronauts going to the National Space Station and doing research or uh, sending robots to Mars or uh, Moon, it is really our everyday life in, in many ways is uh, really tied to space. So for instance, GPS is very a uh, simple example that everybody is familiar with. Geolocation of the GPS is one of the applications, but you know, imagine you want to find the address as you're driving and you don't have GPS these days. Now, in a lot of ways, our everyday lives is dependent on the space, but at the same time, there is this imminent threat of space debris that is constantly threatening the operational satellites. Uh, you know, whether in the lower Earth orbit environment, you know, the higher geo belt environment. And, you know, there is something called Kastler syndrome. Donald uh, Kastler, which was a scientist at NASA, he projected that uh, theoretically we can get to a point that space is so congested that a single collision can basically have a chain reaction and create more and more collisions and basically make space unusable for hundreds of years. Uh, You know, even though space is a very large area, uh, uh, if you think about it, but uh, really, the operationally, you know, the layers of the orbit that we operate most of the satellites is very actually narrow band. And, you know, when you put 30,000 satellites in that narrow band, then suddenly it becomes congested. So that's, a, that's definitely a concern these days. And we've already had some significant accidents already, right? Retired Russian spy satellite that hit a commercial satellite, and that created 2,000 different particles. So maybe talk about some of the some of the historic debris events, where's the debris coming from? And what are some of the most notable events that have happened in the past that we wish hadn't happened? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll start with the example that you mentioned, the Iridium and Cosmos uh, collision event. That was one of the highest profile events that happened, in, if I'm not mistaken, February of 2009, that basically a defunct Russian Cosmos satellite hit one of the Iridium satellites over the North Pole. And that exactly created over 3,000 pieces of debris object. Uh, the Chinese government performed a anti-satellite missile test uh, that they blew up one of their own satellites intentionally. One event that actually stuck with me is that I believe that happened in 2000. I might be getting my dates wrong here, but I believe that happened in 2007 or eight, And five years later, Debris from the same explosion basically hit a Russian science satellite and uh, basically rendered it unusable. When we send the satellites in orbit, not many companies or governments, they deorbit their satellites. 
you know, after the end of the life of a satellite, it can stay in orbit for many, many years as basically a piece of junk that is uh, drifting around and it can uh, pose danger to others, other operational satellites. And is that a requirement change now? Are new satellites required to have some type of thruster so they can come back into Earth's atmosphere and burn up? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I'll start answering that by just saying that something I would keep saying is that technology alone is not the solution here, right? As you pointed out, policy does play and is going to play a tremendous role in, in managing this. As of right now, there's no requirement for satellite deorbiting. Unlike airspace, which belongs to a country and uh, the country can enforce regulations around it, space basically doesn't belong to anyone. So we believe that there needs to be a very serious effort in setting some ground rules for all satellite operators globally to basically keep the uh, Earth orbit environment safe and also uh, sustainable for for next generations. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So. I want to back up a little bit and ask the the Hollywood question. So what's the likelihood of a gravity event happening? So you talked about this chain reaction. If the International Space Station was hit by something significant, th- that should cause a cascade. Is gravity belie- a believable movie? Have you guys had a chance to see it? Yeah, I, when it came out, I was still uh, studying my PhD and we went as a whole you know, research group to see it. And as you can tell, you know, everybody had a lot of opinion about it. So. <laughs> Don't go see a nerd science fiction movie with a bunch of nerds. They'll <laughs> destroy the movie for But yeah, I mean, luckily, in the case of the International Space Station, it is in a very low orbit. So it's one of the lowest orbits in terms of the altitude. A lot of the other assets that we have or other lower Earth objects are above the International Space Station. There's a team of people in Johnson Space Center that their job is to basically monitor the International Space Station 24-7. And basically there is a, they call it a box of a certain size that if there is a piece of debris or other object enters that box in the vicinity of the uh, International Space Station, they will be alerted and they will do corrections if they need to. But that doesn't mean that collisions don't happen. There has been cases that, for instance, the Space Shuttle, I believe it was the Challenger that the they got a piece of a meteor actually hit one of the windows of the shuttle and got a little crack, obviously very small, that didn't compromise the mission. But you can imagine if you are an astronaut inside the shuttle and something hits the window, uh, that'll be a very stressful time for you. Yeah, it's stressful enough driving down the freeway having a rock chip. I can't imagine in space. But you are uh, certain areas in the uh, orbital altitude. We are getting uh, to a point that space becomes very congested. Yeah. Um, and yes, there are concerns that the cloud of debris that the collision would generate will have consequences. And there are cases that these debris clouds, they, they stay in, in orbit. They can fall into a, a what's called a stable orbit and stay, they can stay there for centuries. And is that a concern with SpaceX, with their Starlink uh, satellites? Because they're launching thousands or tens of thousands of these things up, right? Is that a concern that they're adding to this debris field? Or does it depend on which orbit they're going into? Yeah, so that's just one example, right? That's tip of an iceberg. Thousand or so satellites as of right now, I think they've planned 30,000 satellites. There are many more similar planned constellation of satellites that are going to go up. So 
I mean, it, this is basically nothing compared to what we're going to see in the next 10, 20 years. Obviously, SpaceX does a great job at, at um, planning their uh, flights and their missions. But if you think about it from a higher perspective, back up until recently, only as, as we mentioned, larger corporations, also government agencies were flying satellites. Now you can have a small group of students launch a mission. And the sophistication of the teams that are launching these missions, they, they can be a very small team with not a lot of exper expertise. So you, it only takes one human error to cause an accident, right? So even if the other party is a large corporation with, with, and, and they have a lot of um, safety policies in place, an accident can be caused by a human error somewhere else. So the short answer is no, not really particularly concerned about SpaceX in particular, but this is a problem that's going to grow very, very rapidly as more companies are launching much larger or much larger countries constellation satellites. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're listening to More Intelligent Tomorrow, an artificial intelligence podcast brought to you in high fidelity by Data Robot. So one of the questions I have for you guys is the there was that scary event that happened with International Space Station where they didn't have enough time to move the space station because it was just a few hours notice. Using your software, are you going to get, be able to get advance notice compared to the status quo? Or you're going to be able to give everyone access to collision detection, where right now it's only the governments that have access. Maybe speak. It's kind of two questions. Sorry about that. Yeah. So uh, really, when it comes to the operational collision avoidance or conjunction assessment, uh, there are really, I think, uh, there are three parts. Uh, one is better tracking, better modeling, and then modeling of the dynamics and also how you are going to react. To the event. So in terms of the tracking, there are a lot of really good things that are happening in the commercial space market, that there are a lot of commercial companies that are building ground radars, telescopes that are able to track debris objects as well as operational satellites. So the more coverage you have of space, the better it is in terms of you know, having a better tracking and better advanced notice. The other piece is better ability to model the space environment. And that goes to into some of the research that is being done. And in fact, we are involved in some of that work as well in terms of better uh, modeling the Earth uh, upper atmosphere. So believe it or not, in space, even though we think of it as a vacuum, but there is still atmospheric molecules, rather, and they create a drag um, on the spacecraft. Uh, the drag is one of the biggest sources of errors when we are predicting the trajectory of a space object into the future. So better modeling of those dynamics, and uh, U.S. Air Force has done a lot of work in this, and also there are a lot of other uh, organizations that are doing that. And once you have a model, you better track, you understand, okay, there's an upcoming event, then how do you respond to it? And, and I think that's where we come in, uh, in terms of our operational tools, to automate that process. So uh, Ara has mentioned that you know we want to take human error out of the loop. And in fact, uh, you mentioned SpaceX, and there was a close encounter, uh, a very close event happened last year that one of the Starlink satellites was going to have a very close encounter with the ESA satellite, European Space Agency. And uh, the notification from the U.S. Air Force went to I guess the mailbox of a person responsible on the SpaceX side 
and not to drill too much down there, but, but uh, basically having humans in the loop creates more chances for error, right? So as a result, you know, there was no action done by the SpaceX and then the ESA satellite had to perform a maneuver in the last minute and avoid it. So really, the, the automation, in my opinion, is one of the key things here to, to do. That's interesting. So before, you could just not read your email, and then suddenly you have an emergency. That sounds really scary. So bringing in the automation, would you guys get to the point where the satellite would automatically move in the night without human intervention, based on what the software is saying? Yeah, that would be the ultimate goal, right? To have a system that is fully closed loop, right? From tracking, to analysis, to generating the course of action, and then uploading it autonomously to the spacecraft, performing maneuver, have that closed loop system that, that doesn't exist today, but hopefully it'll exist. Yeah, one I wanted to add to that is that, you know, imagine there's a potential collision between a, a flying satellite and, and orbital debris, but you also have uh, cases where two operational satellites have a close approach. In that case, you know, one of the most important things is that two satellite operators or two satellites have to have some sort of communication to make sure that whatever maneuver they perform is not actually going to result into an accident, right? So um, it's not just, hey, I'm a satellite and then I'm flying and I'm autonomous and there's a potential collision and I perform a maneuver. It, it, it just, it's very difficult to, to make that happen in a vacuum and, and minimize the risk. So there's a, there's, there, there needs to be a collaboration between different satellite operators or communication between satellites to plan an optimal maneuver to avoid potential a, a collision. That's something that we're looking at. Obviously, it's, uh, it's, it's not easy, obviously, when you have different companies uh, from across the world launching satellites and launching spacecraft. Uh, and there are cases where you have two uh, non-maneuverable objects are getting too close to each other. We had one case just a few weeks ago that two defunct uh, spacecraft came very close to each other and, it, in, you know, and they had a huge mass. And if, and if a collision occurred, it would have been pretty catastrophic. Another one happened last year, I believe it was November, December of last year over Pittsburgh or over Pennsylvania, that two objects came too close to each other. Again, this is, uh, orbital debris is a big problem. Uh, and, um, you know, if you can maneuver out of it, if you can, yeah, that's great. But there are objects flying that they're not being controlled. And that's why we say that, you know, we need to start talking about putting policies in place where we can guarantee the sustainability of Earth orbit for next generations. Yeah, that, I love the point you bring up because I think when the International Space Station had that near miss, people thought, why don't you just push the booster? And it's there's so much planning. You can't just push the booster up. There's so much planning that goes into it because of everything else that's going on. That's really fascinating. What's the smallest amount of debris that can actually do catastrophic damage to a space mission? I, I think it's not much of a matter of size, but rather if I go a little bit more in terms of like physics, the momentum that object delivers. So obviously a piece of gold, let's say, uh, would generate a lot more damage than a piece of paint that came off a, a booster, right? So, but just to give a, put it in a context, space objects, both satellites and space debris in the lower Earth orbit, they travel something on the order of 10 times the speed of a bullet. Uh, so imagine, you know, you have a, a piece of bolt or a piece of, you know, metal that came off from a satellite traveling 10 times the speed of a bullet, and that hits a, a, another satellite. So it will basically 
depending on what the collision is, it can either basically puncture right through uh, if it hits, a, say, a solar panel, or it can, in a worst case scenario, it can go through a, say, a fuel tank and, and create an explosion. Yeah, so we are talking about a hyperkinetic uh, kind of environment that things are flying on the upward of more than 20,000 kilometers an hour. That's insane. How small can you detect? Is it 10 centimeters or can they go smaller than that now? So right now, one of the largest network of radars and telescopes that exist is managed by the U.S. Air Force. It is called uh, Space Surveillance Network. They are able to detect anything larger than a 10 centimeter, uh, as Aras mentioned. Some, so something about the softball. But we are actually going to have very, very soon, hopefully uh, starting next year operationally, something called Space Fence. Uh, which is essentially a much powerful radar. And that is going to be able to detect objects on the order of uh, three to four centimeters in diameter. So, And that's another factor here, is that now suddenly the size of the catalog of the debris object that we are tracking is going to increase by four to five fold. Yeah. So I'm laughing about that point you brought up because it's scary now, and if you can detect smaller objects, and if you realize it just jumped up in order of magnitude, are astronauts yeah. going to be too scared to go to space now? Yeah, so the expected catalog size is is four to four x growth. So we're expected that will go from somewhere around twenty to thirty thousand to over hundred thousand tracked objects. But scarier part is that even with space fence, there are you know if you think about it, a, a you know piece of debris size of a penny going at you know twenty thousand kilometers an hour can destroy a satellite. So we still won't be able to see a lot of those debris. So it's kind of scary to think about the fact that there's still debris out there that, that we don't see it can cause damage. And and that's one of the reasons that having the capability to respond quickly and autonomously to potential collisions is extremely important. Because just imagine if if a breakup happens, if an accident happens that was mm. not preventable, and all of a sudden we have all these pieces of debris, we need to be able to, in short notice, maneuver out of the way as soon as we have no new known debris that we are tracking in the catalog. So um, that's why we, we believe that this is one of the capabilities that we're building is kind of instrumental to all satellite operators uh, since we give them the, the, the capability to respond really quickly, to get notifications quickly, you know, design maneuvers really quickly and perform the maneuvers really quickly. Uh, we believe that that's, very, uh, that's instrumental in keeping um, operations safe in orbit. So hopefully this doesn't happen, but if a government decides to destroy another satellite without announcing it, then you guys can react very quickly. Is that something people just don't do anymore? Have we agreed that blowing up satellites is a bad idea? Absolutely. The optimal number of collisions per year is zero. We want zero. Yeah, that's that's quite unacceptable if it's intentional. Um, I think we agree in the U.S. that that's a bad thing. Uh, but internationally, it is not quite agreed upon yet. In fact, I believe it was last year that India performed another anti-satellite test that they blew up one of their satellites. Luckily, the orbit has decayed uh, below the uh, International Space Station, but new models have projected that some of the debris from that explosion basically was shot up to higher orbits. It is still a concern. Obviously, you know, uh, and there are other state actors that are not so friendly that can cause issues. So there's always this tug of war, you know, figuratively speaking, 
between different ideologies in terms of what space means to different countries and how uh, you want to utilize it. The other thing I was thinking about, and I love that you guys brought this up, is I think for someone who's naive, they might say, well, this is a pretty easy problem because just Newton's laws of motion, just track all the particles. But that drag, that sounds very, very tricky because I imagine the drag of the low Earth's orbits is much higher than higher up. But even within a zone, is it changing based on the sun and other factors? What are some of the factors that change the dra- the expected drag within a zone? Yeah, you, you mentioned one of the key factors is the solar activity. The solar activity and the amount of high-energy particles that are coming in changes the thermosphere density significantly, uh, which is the upper atmosphere region. And uh, changing the density as a result dictates how much drag you encounter as a, as a space object, right? That's one unknown. If you go higher than that, in a higher orbits, uh, now we are encountering what's called the solar radiation pressure, which is another force that is acting on space objects. Uh, the solar radiation, as a pressure, as it hits on the surface, and it is absorbed and emitted back, uh, so it's a momentum change. You can think of it as a same pressure as you would feel as if somebody hitting you with a water hose, basically. And that is also can be very unpredictable on objects that are not controllable. So basically, if you imagine a, again, piece of paint, we call those hammer objects or high high area to mass ratio. Those objects are very susceptible to solar radiation pressure and also the drag because we cannot accurately predict their orientation. And depending what direction they are oriented as they are orbiting around the Earth, that is going to change their orbit very wildly. I don't remember learning about solar pressures in Navier-Stokes, like in fluid dynamics. Is that an extra term you guys have to tack on to that equation to figure that out? Yeah, it is It is literally the force that is imparted on a surface by photons. And the photons are basically absorbed. And some of the photons, depending on the surface composition, it acts as a mirror. So a photon gets absorbed and re-radiated back, uh, or reflected rather. If it's a dull object, like a metal, a dark metal, so that will absorb. Basically, the, the simple fact act of you know, absorbing the photon and slowing down the photon creates a force over time, which is a very small force, but when we are considering objects that are moving in space, over time that can create a large difference or change in the trajectory of an object, and we have to keep track of that. So I study chemical engineering, so I'm used to studying fluids and particles set- settling in a fluid. And this seems very similar where you have particles settling in orbit because the lower Earth orbit, you've got more drag, so the particles settle faster, right? Where the upper the upper orbits, they could take centuries, like you said. What's the time difference between the different orbits when it comes to things falling out of orbit? Oh, in terms of the decay? Yeah, the uh, decay. What what do the d- decay rates look like between the different orbits? So um, on top of my head, I don't recall, but obviously, you know, uh, objects that are larger and, uh, you know, they have a higher area to mass ratio, they tend to decay faster in lower Earth orbit. In higher, in say, in a geostationary environment, which is much higher altitude, on the order of 42,000 kilometers above Earth, 
there is no any noticeable drag over there. The biggest perturbing effect there is solar radiation pressure and also the oblateness of Earth, basically, because Earth is not a uh, you know, perfect sphere. It has some uh, bulge in the equator. So those effects will result in uh, geostationary satellites after they are not being controlled to drift into different orbits and fall into certain resonance with, with Earth's gravitational field and also solar radiation pressure, and basically stay in a kind of a, a long-term steady orbit. And obviously, those objects do not uh, decay and fall back on Earth. They just stay there. They'll be there forever? There are actually models that if an object falls into a stable region, it can stay there for thousands of years. I, I can't obviously say forever, because... Earth will not uh, uh, last forever. So, <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, uh, stable orbits can last uh, for thousands of years uh, without uh, much perturbation. Yeah, I want to change gears for a second and go back to the founder story. So, CMAC, are you in school still? Are you doing your postdoc? Tell me the decision to go and do the startup. What were you both doing at the time? What was the conversation? What made you decide to pull the trigger? Yeah, good question. So I graduated in 2016, got my PhD and did a postdoc after that for a year on the OSIRIS-REx Asteroid Return Mission, which was a very exciting mission. And I was very lucky to be able to work on that, but then decided to move into the industry. At that time, uh, by then, I had been in the university environment for a very long time. So I worked in different commercial companies, but really something that pushed me to think about starting this business is I realized when it comes to software in the space industry, we are still almost a decade old. You know, like there are uh, cases that people write the software on a, a CD and ship it to other entities. You know, in the in the age of cloud computing, high performance computing, uh, things like that, I realized that there's definitely a potential here to build a good software that is accessible to a wider audience. There are a lot of people that want to get into space business in terms of building and launching a mission, but for them to have access to good quality software is just good for everyone because then the analysis that they will do and the type of the operations that they do in space will dictate whether they, they are being responsible and safe versus, you know, if they, they are not using high fidelity models, they might have large errors that have can have consequences down the road. Aras, what made you decide to join forces and and jeopardize income to go chase this startup vision? Yeah, so when you know when I talked to Samak, I was actually in the middle of doing my first uh, startup, and then normally, you know, it's like a shiny object you see, and and I'm I'm normally very good at controlling myself and, and saying no, but I mean, this sounded like a really really good opportunity. It sounded like a real problem, uh, and it was, you know, when you look at product market fit, that this you know definition, and you look at the opportunity and uh, market size, it basically um, checked all the boxes. We decided to just spend the weekends and treat it as a side project and, and do more market research. So we created an MVP, we worked on it, and and the more we uh, did our research, the more we spoke with potential customers and and other entities, we the more we realized that it is um, essentially a big problem that that we need to solve. So yeah, so we just um, 
Dogen, and uh, earlier this year, we landed a contract with US Air Force. We went to Techstars and uh, Buddha team and raised some funds. And uh, yeah, now we're going full steam ahead. What was that like talking to investors early on? Did you have to teach them a lot about space junk? Was this something they weren't familiar with? Or was the problem pretty compelling for them? One thing that I can say is that space industry is really exciting, which is great because when it comes to attracting talent or uh, talking to investors, it's, you know, it's just an exciting, exciting industry. So that helped. We spoke with, obviously, we spoke with a number of investors. Some were space-focused, so they understood the problem really well. We also uh, worked with investors that they were generalists. So in some cases, we, we had to talk about the problem. They had to do some research or they had to talk to you know uh, either our advisors or, or some of the customers to kind of better understand the problem and, and confirm that the, the product market exists. But in general, one thing that I can say is that everybody gets excited. And even if they, they're not really familiar with the problem, they do research. And, and luckily, thanks to, you know, um, uh, activists out there and, and, and journalists, there's a decent amount of, of information out there that, you know, we can just simply learn a lot very quickly by doing some Google, Google search. And that's one of the things we try to do. We try to, you know, talk to journalists, work, work with other activists, talk to our elected officials, try to, you know, talk to more influential people in, in Washington and around, just to increase awareness uh, around this problem. Having done several startups yourself previously, how do you manage this tug of war between strategic thinking and urgency? Because with, with startups, if you have two extremes, you get in trouble. And I'm sure you've dealt it with hair on fire, working long hours. What's your perspective and how do you deal with that now? Urgency versus strategic thinking? I think it's very difficult to say no, especially for a lot of startups. When you see opportunity, you, you're automatically attracted to it, but and it's, it's one of the hardest things to just to say no. But that's something that we, we practice a lot and we, we have great advisors who, who hold us accountable. And one thing that we've done is we sat down and we, it's a continuous process. We do it all the time. Uh, we revisit this uh, very frequently. We sit down and we list all the opportunities that we have in front of us. And then we, we try to look at the, urgency, look at the size of the market, the amount of effort it's going to take, and how it's going to affect other parts of the, the company. And then what we have is, is a, we have a rolling roadmap of features and functionalities and capabilities that, that we are developing. And that's, you know, it evolves, right? As we talk to more customers, you know, things happen that, that evolve. So we, we try to be very methodical with this. We try not to basically jump into opportunities without thinking it through and without kind of talking to our advisors. But but it's, again, it's it's hard, right? So the way we balance it, obviously, financial uh, health of the company is extremely important. As a result, some of the some of the things that play a big role in in us prioritizing different functionalities and and, and capabilities is market size and market demand. And we believe that uh, collision avoidance and actual suspend collision avoidance is a kind of low hanging fruit. It's a it's a big problem. And, you know, m- most satellite operators want more automation, want more autonomy, and it's something that's in our wheelhouse. So that's that's the one that we've prioritized today. It's probably something where there's definitely a talent moat because doing this type of modeling, it's not something that someone from the data science industry can just jump in and do. You kind of have to have a really deep STEM background as well, right? Absolutely. So if I say I'm a stats major, I'm going to come after you guys. You'll probably laugh. Like, if that was true, you guys would laugh at me, like, be like, yeah. Uh, what's your reaction to that? What What does your moat look like for protecting your IP and, and the stuff you guys are working on? 
that's probably one of the biggest challenges uh, we have today. It's not our problem. It's senior Swiss company's problem today is talent, finding good talent. And in, in this particular area, finding somebody like Siamak, who is you know an aerospace engineer who understands astrodynamics and also can write code is, is extremely difficult. So what we do there is that we try to uh, kind of build a pipeline of talent out of schools early on. So we have We've been working with research institutes and, and um, universities to do joint projects. We submit proposals to government calls, and we try to, we have internship programs that we uh, we invite PhD students or master's students to come and, and intern with us. Finding talent is extremely difficult. And another thing we do today a little bit, but we'll do more in the future is training, right? So we have engineers on our team who have, you know, dual masters, say, in electrical engineering uh, and computer engineering. Obviously, they have great and math, but they don't understand astrodynamics. So we pair them with our astrodynamics engineers, and they learn over time. They work together uh, in, in teams, first of all, develop capabilities for us, and also kind of learn um, the astrodynamics side of the things. So CMAC, what would you say to people that want to come work for Kahan Space? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but uh, earlier this year, we were three people. Now we have a team of 10 people and we are growing, we are hiring. And, um, you know, if your audience, uh, people that are in the STEM or you know, computer science or uh, physics, uh, astrodynamics, aerospace field, that they are, they like to work on even math, that they like to work on, you know, cutting edge technology, exciting problems. Uh, and it's a very fast paced environment. Uh, for instance, we have, you know, two week sprints that we build uh, a capability within two weeks and test it the next sprint. Whoever is interested in working on exciting stuff in a fast-paced environment, uh, I think they are a place for them. Yeah, what I'll add to that is that a couple of things. First, it's a really, really fun industry. And when you go to parties, you have a lot of stories to tell when you're working for a space industry. And it's yeah. uh, it's just, it's, it's very exciting just for everyone. You know, my previous company, cybersecurity, obviously, uh, I had to try hard to get people excited about the problem we were solving. But with this one, I, I I see the difference. You know, it's 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 a lot of fun, especially when you you know you're talking to just you know average you know you know people around you. Um, the second thing is that as CMX said, things that we're building are still active research topics. They, the technology is developing uh, as we speak, and it's really exciting to be part of that, pushing humanity forward. And the third piece is that um, you know this ties directly to our national security, where the technologies we're building are helping us continue to to maintain our security in space on ground it's, it's it's a really 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 interesting place to be plus we have a really fun team we have a team of engineers we have people from all the way from new york state to oregon we we cover three time zones space industry one but but Kion space in particular is uh, is a really it's a really fun team to be a part of and um you know we would be happy to uh to talk to you if, if you're interested there's definitely a big draw working with smart people. And it sounds like the problem that you guys are working on, that definitely pulls you in. So C-Mac, do you think aliens haven't visited Earth because we have too much space debris? They showed up and they turned around because it was too dangerous? I sure hope, uh, do hope so, because we, we are going to keep having space debris problems, so... If the space debris keeps them away, that'll be good. So it's like our space shield, but maybe it'll keep us in. We can't get to Mars. So I'm glad you guys are working on what you're working on. Yeah. Because I, I want to see humans go to Mars while I'm alive. 
Yeah, and uh, in a kind of a bigger picture, humans are Mars. I think that's something that I certainly believe that it's going to happen in my lifetime because the technology is there. We have demonstrated the capability, and obviously, for instance, uh, you know, SpaceX is one of the examples that is le- really leading the charge on the commercial side of you know building capability to go to Mars, and uh, you know, hopefully, someday the humans. But we have different pieces of the technology required for to make the journey, and you know, land there and land it safely. But uh, it's just a matter of time, and I do believe that it will happen in our lifetime. And just to give you a little bit of peace of mind, one of the capabilities we're building is what's called a launch uh, conjunction system, which once we have that shield to keep the aliens out, we have the capability to uh, plan a launch that is uh, going to be safe and it won't have, it'll, it'll fly safely through all the debris and other objects. So. so you can get out of the hole between the passing bullets that are going. Yeah, we'll, we'll skin the launch and we make sure that there are no conjunctions uh along the way. And, and that reminded me, so when we have launches today, a lot of times we talk about the weather, but there's also a space debris aspect to that as well, right? So they don't that's really, exactly. yeah, that, that's not really top of mind. Super interesting. Do either of you have any interest in going to space if that was an option? Yeah, we were talking that space is exciting uh, and a lot of people find it exciting, but it's been really a lifetime passion for myself because, you know, I, I remember exactly when I was in elementary school and uh, we had a radio station local radio station come and you know do some report from the kids and they were asking going around the room asking uh, you know what do you want to be when you grow up and it's kind of a cliche right you know a lot of the kids say yo i want to be an astronaut so I, I was one of those kids but that kind of passion kind of stuck with me uh, through adulthood uh, so i found my way getting into uh, aerospace program cu boulder is one of the leading schools in the aerospace program i think i'm very lucky to have that have had that opportunity so um yeah and i guess starting this company was also partly because i wanted to make something lasting and meaningful uh, you know leave a legacy so to speak uh, a meaningful legacy that will make a difference in our lives yeah how awesome is that to align your passions with something that offers value where there's a market and you have the opportunity to leave a legacy because you allowed SpaceX to leave to Mars without getting paint chips. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm very lucky in that sense. I've done a lot of reading in terms of the passion versus career or job versus career. You know, like job is something that you just do to earn money and career is something that you're passionate about and you want to pursue. And few people those two line up, right? That you actually make money doing something you love. And I think, um, you know, I'm very, uh, one of those lucky ones that is able to do that. Sometimes when you have passion driving you like that, doing a startup, you can invest too much time. So do you have routines outside of work? Do you have, what do you like to do when you're not working? How do you protect yourself from being too focused on one thing? Um, yeah, I guess the pandemic era, I guess it is a little bit difficult to do um, outdoors, but both myself and my wife are very outdoors fans and living in Colorado uh, makes it easy because we have, you know, we can drive five minutes and we, we get into a mountain, but but it is difficult, right? You know, starting a business is very challenging, very difficult, and I owe a lot to my wife and the family that, you know, they allow me to sometimes work uh, nonstop during the day 
uh, or even weekends. And I'm sure Aras feels the same way. But yeah, I mean, there's got to be a balance. And, uh, you know, my, my way of coping with it is try to go outdoors as much as I can. Uh, I like to do mountain biking. Uh, I used to do that a lot. Uh, it has significantly reduced since I started this company, but uh, I try to do that still. And also, you know, both Aras and myself, we block time in our calendar for personal, um, you know, time. The time that we are going to spend with the family and kids and we don't take meetings at that time. And we know that both of us are basically are with family. And I think those are the things that force us to kind of have a balance between uh, work and life, healthy balance, hopefully. That's really good to have those boundaries. What about you, Oraz? What do you do for your routines? You know, in the past five or so years, I've learned by trial, right? And one thing that I highly recommend is as soon as I blocking time, right? So we, I have one day of week, I just absolutely do not work. I spend time with family and go out. And one of the things that CMX and I do ourselves and also try to promote it with the team as well is to take some time off. For example, we had a really busy summer, then we just took a week off, got an RV, drove different places. And not only did that, but also came back, talked about it and encouraged our team to do the same. Because it's, it's extremely important. I personally love snowboarding, so I uh, traveled to Colorado a lot during winter and tried to, uh, you know, Simak is a very good skier, by the way. He's very hum- he's been humble. He's a very good skier. He's competed in the past. Um, so, yeah, do a lot of outdoors, man, yeah, hiking, traveling, um, and I have a garden. What do you grow in your garden? All sorts of stuff. So, um, you know, from all sorts of vegetables to herbs to uh, trees, I've started planting some trees, and I'm experimenting with some uh, new hydroponic uh, systems this year because uh, I want to continue to grow it over winter and it's too cold here to grow during winter. So Nice. So with those hydroponic systems, any interest in making it, uh, connecting it to the web or having some monitor online so you can travel and make sure your plants are, are happy and well? Oh, it's already done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have cameras, uh, irrigation systems that I can control remotely. I have sensors. So yeah, it's all set up. Nice. So you're not going to come home from a trip and find your hydroponic tomato plants dead. Yeah, that's just right. Plus, um, the the new hydro hydroponic system I'm trying now is doesn't doesn't require that much attention. I'm blank on the name right now. Simic, like if you remember, mention it. But it, it's designed by this um, uh, professor from University of Hawaii that doesn't doesn't really require any pumps or you know uh, airflow or anything. Uh, that's awesome. I did have a technical question I forgot to ask. So coming from traditional STEM science, we talk about white box models where you can represent everything with known physics, like Navier-Stokes and the different elements you talked about. Then have black box models, and we talk about this idea of gray box models. For you guys predicting where things are in orbit, are you able to model everything with what you see as being a white box model, or do you have to play with parameters where it feels more like a gray box model? Maybe speak to that for some of the technical listeners. How do you... How do you approach modeling something so complex? Yeah, I, I would say that the, especially in the astrodynamics and space object tracking falls right into a, that kind of a gray box model because we have very good idea in terms of the physics of orbit dynamics. We have we are modeling obviously NASA, NOAA. Uh, they they model Earth's orientation, Earth's gravitational parameters. We have Air Force does a lot, really good job modeling the upper atmospheric behavior. We have good models of the solar radiation pressure. But still, 
at the end of the day, it's a probabilistic approach when we do tracking of the spacecraft. Uh, so, in fact, one of the fields that University of Colorado Boulder is uh, one of the leading entities in that is called statistical orbit determination. And uh, what it is is essentially using uh, knowledge of uh, statistics to be able to track objects in orbit. So it's a kind of a perfect gray box model that you know you have some idea about the physical dynamics that govern the motion of the object in space, but also you have a lot of stochastics that you are not able to model. You know you have a lot of randomness, for instance, in the uh, atmosphere uh, density, right? Or even the solar radiation pressure because solar radiation changes over time. It's not a constant uh, entity. So those statistical models, uh, stochastics, play uh, into our errors or uncertainties that we have when we are tracking a space object. So when we track a space object, we never say, I know where this object is precisely. We always have a uncertainty bounds around it. That we say, okay, I, I think I know this object is here, but with plus and minus this many kilometers, for instance, or this many meters. So there's always this statistical and probabilistic angle to uh, when it comes to astrodynamics and object tracking. That makes sense. So I'm imagining some gorgeous command center dashboard with the Earth in all the space debris that's floating around. Is that something that's on the roadmap for some brilliant UX UI designer to join in version two or three where people come into a command center and they watch your software run? Exactly. Yep. So that's exactly what we're doing. We just hired a, um, a fantastic UI UX uh, designer, and that's exactly what we're doing. You know, there's so much information that, that it becomes extremely important how to convey it in a more effective and efficient way. And we, you know, I personally believe that VR is going to be big and in coming years, and that's something that we'll be focusing on. But right now, we are working on uh, nicer, uh, easier to understand rendering of where objects are and where the where things are happening. So have you purchased the Oculus Quest yet or started playing with some VR yourself? Not yet. I think we're going to stick to a mobile one for now because I, we believe there's more use cases there. But yeah, that's something that we've been we've started thinking about. So how do you envision VR fitting into what you guys would be working on? What's where are we going to be in the future, five or 10 years from now with your software and system? Yeah, one, one really kind of easy example is that imagine you are a commander, you're a warfighter, you're a commander, you want to see what space assets you have at your disposal for an upcoming mission. Um, you can either go through a bunch of text uh, or you can lift up an iPad and, 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 and simulate the, based on the timeline and see what, what assets uh, you're going to have uh, at your disposal. So that's a very, very simple kind of example, especially for, uh, for military purposes or intelligence purposes. But yeah, I mean, for even for education, um, I believe having nice renderings helps a lot with uh, with education, and and visualization is just makes decision making easier. Maybe when you guys are done with your software, you can send the VR headset to all the world leaders so they don't do any more satellite missile tests. Yeah. Look up, look, look at all the debris that's flying <laughs> yeah. over your head. <laughs> um, and I also want to mention that aside from that, also we you know put out publicly available capabilities like APIs for free for uh, people to use. The idea here is that to deliver high quality software to larger audience. So the goal hopefully uh, with our publicly available APIs is that people can use them and be able to 
do high fidelity simulations or modeling uh, of their space missions. Uh, CMAC, that just reminded me that could be a fun future challenge where you have a design challenge where you provide some data and you see in the design community who can come up with the the most appealing visualization of space junk. Because with all that data, it can get pretty busy. It's a little hard to understand what's going on. I imagine you guys have different um, data points on each piece of debris, right? Do people, do they know what the debris source is or do they have assumptions? Do they know the material and size estimate? What, what are some of the labels that get attached to a single debris item in the catalog? Do you have the drag coefficient estimate for each one? Yeah, to some extent. So all the debris objects that are uh, tracked by the 18 Space Control Squadron, which is the entity that manages the space surveillance network that I talked about earlier, they track the objects. If it is a lower Earth object, they usually track it with radars. If it is a geostationary object, they track it with uh, telescopes. So they do models, and uh, we have a pretty good idea about... shows me that I'm muted. So one question I had is, you can't actually see all the space debris in real time, right? You can only see when it passes over certain radars, and so you're assuming where it is the rest of the time. How big of a view can you actually see in real time? So the space catalog, which is you know managed by the 18 Space Control Squadron, is updated, I think, uh, on the order of three times a day. So that's pretty, uh, you know, in our kind of line of work, it is very real time, uh, near real time. You know, so they, they update the, the catalog of about you know, close to 25, 20, 30,000 objects three times a day. But yeah, I mean, it's essentially uh, radars and also telescopes that are tracking these objects. And we have models that uh, basically, first of all, they model the op- uh, debris back to the or its origin, so we know what debris object or which uh, satellite the debris object is part of. Uh, so we have pretty good understanding of that, but also to some level on the dimensions. Obviously, with a telescope, we can, with visible light, we can see and kind of have an idea of the size and the, or, you know, the shape. But also with radar, using the radar cross-section, we can and model the composition of the uh, surface of the object as well as, you know, get some idea about the size of it. So. That makes sense. I could talk to both of you guys, I think, for hours. I want to be respectful of your time. CMAC and Arez, I really appreciate you being on the podcast and talking to us about Space Junk. Thanks so much. No, this was, this was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, keep following us. Will do. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of More Intelligent Tomorrow. Feel free to subscribe to continue discovering the heroes of tomorrow, illuminating the path forward today. Visit us at datarobot.com slash podcast to learn more.